From Virginia to Iowa, Texas to Montana, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the U.S. economy continues to create new jobs and the inflation rate remains stubbornly high. Will the Federal Reserve be able to cool inflation without triggering a recession? Michael Farron from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is here with analysis. President Biden has proposed new regulations to accelerate the conversion from gas-powered to electric vehicles. But he outlined no plans for additional power plants. How is that going to work? Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The Biden administration is pushing so-called Buy American rules, but there are unintended consequences. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And the latest Rich States, Poor States report has been released. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has details on this week's American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. 236,000 new jobs were created in March, and the nation's unemployment rate is near an all-time low. Good news? Maybe not, as we learn from Michael Farron. He is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Michael, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Michael, the March jobs report, the employment report, and the unemployment report, for that matter, have come out. How's the economy doing when it comes to jobs? I would characterize it as slowing but not stalling. We saw 236,000 new jobs in March. Um, Many of those were in leisure and hospitality and government sectors, both employment sectors that uh, have not yet fully caught up from job losses during the pandemic. So those are good signs. Uh, We even saw a little bit of a net increase in the tech job sector despite recent layoffs. So that's also pretty good. Uh, Unemployment rates is doing gangbusters. It's the lowest unemployment rate we've had in uh, over 50 years, barring the unemployment rates that we saw just before the pandemic. And unemployment for black workers actually was the lowest ever recorded on record at 5%. So overall, things are doing pretty darn good. That might sound like good news. However, we have stubbornly high inflation The Federal Reserve has been trying to bring it under control. Are these good numbers actually running counter to what the Fed is trying to achieve? I wouldn't say that they're running counter to what the Fed is trying to achieve. For the moment, I think that economists are are regarding this as maybe, maybe the Fed will be able to achieve its, its soft landing and that if they can slow job growth but not stall out, that they'll be able to actually uh, land the economic plane without too much collateral damage. But there is uh, a lot of concern in the market and among business leaders that we're going to be looking at a recession either later this year or perhaps sometime next year. And the way that I'm looking at this is that We seem to have mostly, for all intents and purposes, recovered from the job losses seen during the pandemic, and that uh, it's good to get one problem taken care of before you have to tackle another one. 
Looking ahead, there's been some discussion about this. Obviously, the various presidents of the regional feds are going to be determining whether or not they're going to continue raising interest rates. We've had a run-up in interest rates over the last year or so. Reading the tea leaves and some of the statements that have been made by uh, the Fed chairman and others, are the signals pointing toward continued increases or maybe going to be somewhat of a pause here? You know, Loman, if if I were able to accurately predict that, I'd have my own private island somewhere. I can't say one way or another. I think it, reading the tea leaves is a good way to describe that. Uh, I think that's a little bit more astrology than economics in some ways. What I can say is that in terms of what the Fed is seeing, they're seeing a reduced amount of job openings. We still have almost 10 million job openings uh, arguably available, but that's substantially reduced from the uh, 10.5 or even 12 million that we saw within the last year. And uh, we're seeing labor force participation. I'm not sure it's peaking, but it is uh, definitely higher than uh, and has mostly recovered. Um, Essentially, at this point, this is the reason why I think that the labor market has pretty much recovered from the pandemic, is that the prime age workers labor force participation rate. So that's workers in the prime age of working from ages 25 through 54. They have reattained their labor force participation, meaning they're either working or looking for jobs uh, actively. They've reattained their pre-pandemic levels. Younger workers than that have reattained their previous levels. The only loss of jobs at this point or loss of workers is for workers over the age of 55, who are a couple percentage points lower than they were before the pandemic. That applies around one and a half million, uh, maybe two of older workers uh, retired earlier than expected. So I think that's more of a structural change. And that's the reason why I think that we've managed to reattain or reattain full recovery following the pandemic. And so I think that The Fed is going to see that and also see job growth as sort of slowing. And I I don't know how they read that. I really wish I did. Well, it's always fascinating to watch how the Fed works. Looking at this historically then, Michael, in the past when we've had high inflation and the Fed has had to take steps to try to cool it off, have we had soft landings or historically do these measures trigger at least some amount of a recession, be it mild or otherwise? Historically, soft landings have been devilishly hard to pull off. Sometimes the Fed has steered the plane directly into the ground to get control of the situation, uh, as what we saw with the sharp recession that occurred under uh, Volcker in the early 80s. The one thing I will say is that we still have high inflation, but inflation is starting to to cool off. Uh, the, the CPI inflation rate was a 6% year-over-year increase in February. Um, That was down from a 6.4% year-over-year increase in January. Similarly, the uh, inflation measure that the Fed favors to look at, the PCE, that was 5% year-over-year in February, which was down from 5.3% in January. Uh, And that peaked at 7% uh, last June. So I guess the real question the Fed has to answer is, 
is inflation, if they, if they take their foot off the gas, is inflation just going to plateau or do they need to keep their foot on the gas uh, in order to, to keep shoving inflation farther down? And I guess we'll find out in early May. A little bit like putting together a Rubik's Cube. You change one part, one component, another component changes as well. That's With- a great way to describe the economy, except the problem is, is every face of the Rubik's Cube gets to decide what color they feel like being at any individual point. That's what it's de- like with dealing with individual economic agents and businesses. We certainly are going to continue to try and explain it, decipher it here as much as possible. We've been doing that with Michael Farron, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, that located at George Mason University. And Michael, tell us a bit about the Mercatus Center and also where can folks find you on the web? The Mercatus Center is an economic research center at George Mason University that strives to be the bridge between academic research and the real-world public policy problems that policymakers have to confront and to help explain these things to the public. You can find more on our research at mercatus.org. Michael Farron of the Mercatus Center. Michael, thank you for being here. Thank you, Loman. Scott Parkinson is at the offices of the Club for Growth. From that perch, he keeps an eye on what's happening at the White House, under the Capitol Dome, and politically around the country. Scott, good to have you back with us. Thank you, Loman. President Biden this past week, Scott, outlined a, I guess you could call it, ambitious plan, basically to phase out gas-powered automobiles and replace most of the fleet with electric vehicles. What sort of regulations is the president now proposing? Well, there's a lot of different ways we could describe it, different adjectives. We could call it aggressive. We could call it short-sighted. We could call it destructive. I I think the bottom line is here what the White House and Environmental Protection Agency proposed was effectively a ban on traditional gas cars in favor of their favorite type of transportation, electric vehicles. And this is part of President Biden's environmental, radical, Green New Deal policies that are coming to fruition through executive orders. And he's promised that he was going to be reducing carbon emissions during his administration. And and what this rule would do is it would accelerate the transition to clean vehicles and reduce pollution by apparently 10 billion tons by 2025. You know, I love these rosy scenarios that executive branch bureaucrats put out. They, They come up with these fake estimates, and they say, oh, we're going to reduce emissions by 10 billion tons by 2025. That, that's 32 years from now. How, how do you know? And the bottom line is, first, Biden is coming after gas stoves. Now he's coming after gasoline-powered vehicles. And I think that it's just a disastrous transition in our economic security to be hammering away at these proven methods of technology. We know that gas cars are are more energy efficient than they've ever been before. We see that in the miles per gallon. But that's not enough for the administration here. And the bottom line is, when you put out these executive orders and regulation that is calling for a new standard, it's going to be a market manipulation that I think will only create new pressures on, a, on an energy crisis. We can all predict these rolling blackouts that are going to happen. We're going to have lithium battery dependency, uh, and these batteries are typically made in China, Chile, and Australia. 
And again, another fake scenario out there, the, the Biden administration is claiming that the new rule is going to save $12,000 per vehicle. I mean, who actually believes that? These statistics are completely made up. It's just another example of Green New Deal cronyism and Biden placating to those radical environmentalists. And, of course, in order for all these vehicles, Scott, to be switched over to electric power, that means we have to generate the electric power. Has anybody given any thought, as the president mentioned at all, any plans to build new power plants, for example? Because, as you just mentioned, we already have rolling blackouts in California and some other places. If you switch most of the vehicle fleet over to electricity, this sounds to me like nobody's really thought this completely through. Well, if we listen very closely, I think we can hear the answer on on the question related to new power plants. Let's listen closely for a second. Total silence. And the bottom line is I don't think that there's really in any big, bold plan to increase electric production within the United States. We had the Inflation Reduction Act that was basically radical cronyism for the environmentalists putting forward Green New Deal policies. It, with this emission standard, I think it's also important to, to, to recognize these requirements on automakers to cut their greenhouse gas emissions. They're calling it the tailpipe emissions rule. What they are trying to do here, Loman, is they are trying to take away your gasoline-powered vehicle and change your behavior as a consumer, pushing it toward electric. Now, think about somebody that's a car collector or somebody that just actually likes their truck or their SUV that's powered by gasoline. They want to take out gas pumps from the gas station, and I think that this is also sort of an interesting timing of the regulation given the fact that gasoline prices are are increasing at a pretty rapid rate right now throughout America. In my area, they're up 30 cents over the last three weeks, and we're headed into May and June when we've got a stronger demand on gasoline and energy heading into the summer, the travel schedule. I think that we're going to see a big increase when it comes to gasoline prices. I predict by the end of June that they'll be over $4 a gallon, once again, for the national average. And the other thing to keep in mind here is that we had new inflation data this week showing that that consumer price index was at about 5%. I think that that's, once again, a manipulated data point. We all know inflation is, is we're feeling it in, in energy, we're feeling it in food prices, and we're feeling it in everything that we buy. And once again, we're going to find ourselves really paying a, a higher price in the coming months. Wages aren't keeping up. We're not enacting and promoting pro-growth policies that result in the macroeconomic effects that improve the economic prosperity for all Americans in all communities. So I think that as we have the debt limit increase coming up in the middle of the summer, as we have these big debates in Washington, we need to be talking about pro-growth policies. And this Biden emissions regulation and transition toward electric vehicles is anything but a pro-growth policy. Switching over to politics, a bit of controversy this past week over U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California. Seems she's been having a lot of health problems lately, Scott, and not really able to do her job. What is the job of a United States senator? That's the big question that a lot of us are facing today. And the reality is, yeah, Dianne Feinstein has been recovering from shingles, among other health ailments, within her home in San Francisco. This week, one of her congressional colleagues, Ro Khanna, from California, 
called for her to resign, saying that it is a uh, standard of all representatives in Congress to be able to show up in person to do their job. I don't actually remember that same talking point during the coronavirus pandemic when they were all voting by proxy. But uh, the reality is that Dianne Feinstein has been missing in action for about two months. And in response, she offered to temporarily take herself off the Judiciary Committee and allow another senator to help advance the judicial nominations and other work of the committee uh, in her absence until she returns. There is a big question in Washington. Will she actually ever be healthy enough to come all the way from California back to Washington, D.C.? I also think that it's worth pointing out the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, and another senator from your state, John Fetterman, have, have also missed significant time recently, but both of them are expected back in the Senate next week when Congress resumes its session schedule. And, of course, with Congress almost evenly divided, one absent senator can make a difference. We will keep an eye on that and other developing stories with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is the nation's leading economic conservative organization. And if anybody wants to check us out to learn about our ideas for economic liberty, prosperity, and opportunity, you can actually sign up and become a member for free at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Buy American sounds good, but federal rules requiring use of American-made products and services are having some unintended consequences, as we learn from Eric Baim of Reason Magazine. The Biden administration has framed its new, tighter Buy American regulations as a way to bolster domestic manufacturing and benefit parts of the country that have been left behind by technological innovation. To many of those same communities, the White House has also promised better connectivity and higher internet speeds. The bipartisan infrastructure plan signed by President Joe Biden in 2021 dedicated $42 billion to expanding broadband access, with much of that funding supposed to be aimed at laying fiber optic lines in parts of the country where they don't exist. But there's just one small problem with all of this. Finding enough fiber optic cable that complies with Biden's Buy American rules. Yes, the Biden administration's own Buy American rules are getting in the way of the Biden administration's rural broadband push because industrial policy is never as simple as it seems. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. You know, despite the fact that the United States is the world's top importer of fiber optic cable, America also produces a lot of the stuff. We made more than 72 million miles of it last year, according to the Fiber Broadband Association. That's an industry group. Now, the fiber optic line itself, a line of fiber optic cable, is a thin strand of glass. And then it's surrounded by protective coatings made from uh, steel, copper, aluminum, plastic, and a bunch of other materials to support the glass and uh, make sure it doesn't break. Under Biden's Buy American rules... 55% of the component parts of any product used in a federal construction project must be sourced in the United States. That disqualifies, of course, any finished cable that's imported from overseas, but it also, as it turns out, wipes out most of the available American-made supply, too, because many of those component parts are sourced from overseas, even when the fiber optic cable is made here. The result is that this actually hinders the supply of optical and digital solutions 
by incentivizing products with end-to-end manufacturing in the United States, says Paul Atkinson, CEO of the Optical Business Network at STL. It's a digital network firm. In a post that he wrote at telecoms.com, which is an industry blog, he said that both Congress and the Biden administration are focused on a dual purpose when it comes to the infrastructure rollout. They want to expand infrastructure while increasing U.S. manufacturing output. But particularly when it comes to the rollout of optical fiber connectivity, these dual purposes seem contradictory. Industrial policy, of course, always more complicated than the bumper sticker slogans that are used to justify it. Another problem, according to a Bloomberg report from earlier this month, is that building a fiber optic network requires a lot more than just fiber optic cable. You also need switches, terminals, routers, and lots of other pieces of tiny technology that are mostly imported or manufactured with component parts that are imported. In both cases, the Buy American requirements mean that broadband companies can't use those parts for projects that are funded in full or in part with the federal dollars from the infrastructure bill. So that means we get less infrastructure, and it also means that lots of perfectly good American-made fiber optic cable doesn't get purchased, simply because less than 55% of its component parts happened to come from somewhere else. Now, the easiest solution to this would be to just waive the Buy American rule, and, and in fact, there's a long history of the federal government waiving these rules for federal infrastructure projects. But Biden has been pretty clear about the fact that he doesn't want to do that. In fact, during this year's State of the Union address, he bemoaned how for too long past administrations have found ways to get around Buy American mandates. In an executive order that he signed last year, he promised to crack down on the use of waivers by federal agencies, making it more difficult to get around these rules, even though his infrastructure plan requires getting around these rules. Now, the Biden administration might have to find a way to get around those same rules. The Washington Post reports that senior Biden administration officials are stressing that waivers will be available in certain circumstances. Now, those waivers might prevent some of the worst unintended consequences here, but they don't really address the underlying problem. Biden's Buy American mandate is a blunt tool that fails to account for the realities of modern manufacturing supply chains. As the fiber optic cable situation helpfully illustrates, requiring that 55% of a product's component parts are sourced in America actually ends up disqualifying lots of products that are made in America. And it's only going to get worse because Biden approved new rules last year that will gradually increase that threshold from 55% to 75% by 2029. So in summary, the White House has agreed to spend $42 billion on fiber optic broadband deployment, and that was already going to be an unnecessary and wasteful expense. But now, thanks to the Biden administration's Buy American rules, rural broadband projects will cost even more if they get built at all. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out everything else that we're covering this week in Washington, D.C. and around the country at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. States compete not only with other nations, but also with each other. The annual Rich States, Poor States report tracks their progress. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council is a co-author of that report, and he has this American Radio Journal commentary. As Americans continue to pay more for groceries and gasoline, most have very little appetite right now for higher taxes. Well, that didn't stop President Joe Biden from recently pushing a $4.7 trillion federal tax increase as part of his new budget proposal, targeting American businesses, families, and energy producers. 
This tone-deaf call for federal tax hikes right now comes at amid record-setting tax collections totaling $4.9 trillion. Washington can't quit its spending addiction either, as the national debt is approaching a previously unfathomable $32 trillion. There is, however, hope to be had across the 50 states, the laboratories of democracy, as we like to say. This legislative session, a growing number of states are countering Washington, D.C.'s big government approach by implementing pro-growth and pro-worker policies at the state level. And that's the smart approach, of course. As the latest census data reveals, millions of Americans are voting with their feet by moving to states that value more freedom and more opportunity for all. These states are highlighted in the newly released 16th edition of our report, Rich States, Poor States, the Alec Laffer State Economic Competitiveness Index. The 15 economic policy variables we use to rank the economic outlook of the states have proven over time to be highly influential for state competitiveness and growth. Since 2007, our research has documented how cutting taxes, paying down debt, and maintaining a free market environment has significantly helped states attract new residents. With that in mind, it's no surprise that the top five states in economic outlook for this year are Utah, North Carolina, Arizona, Idaho, and Oklahoma. And the least competitive states may not come as a surprise either. Illinois, New Jersey, Minnesota, Vermont, with New York coming in dead last. For 16 years in a row, Utah has earned the top ranking thanks to its pro-taxpayer policies. During these years, the Beehive State has created a flat personal income tax and has continued to work at reducing that rate, which is now under 5%, reformed its public pension system to the benefit of both workers and taxpayers, and kept property taxes in check with its innovative truth in taxation law. Down south, North Carolina is ranked second in the nation for economic outlook. Thanks to historic tax reform in 2013, which significantly lowered and flattened income taxes, North Carolina improved from its ranking of 26th overall back in 2011 and has attracted more than 600,000 new residents in the past decade. Once North Carolina completes this phase-out of the state business income tax this decade, the sky's the limit for more economic growth. Just up Interstate 95 from Raleigh, the Virginia comeback story is underway in Richmond. Last year, Virginia received its lowest ranking ever at 24th overall, the result of a long decline as Virginia really fell behind by standing still as other states raced ahead in cutting taxes. However, the 2022 legislative session was a productive one in creating tax cuts for Virginians. Thanks to the leadership of free market legislators and Governor Glenn Youngkin, Virginia reversed a nearly decade-long losing streak and climbed up an impressive six spots to 18th this year. Kentucky was another bright spot, jumping an impressive seven spots to 27th overall. Over the last 15 years, Kentucky has moved up a total of 17 places due to its creation of a flat personal income tax in 2019 and its continued progress towards cutting tax rates in recent years. On the other hand, New York is once again ranked 50th for economic outlook due to its punishing tax burdens, overspending, and heavy-handed regulatory policies. The Empire State has also hemorrhaged more than 1.7 million residents on net in the past decade, and more than 300,000 in the past year alone. 
Massachusetts fell four places in the rankings this year to 37th, its worst ranking ever as a state. After voters approved a teachers' union-backed ballot measure in November that changed the personal income tax from a flat tax to a progressive tax, it almost doubled the rate up to 9%. This marks the return of the term Taxachusetts, unfortunately, and the state will struggle to be competitive in the New England region, especially where con- neighboring New Hampshire posts no income tax and no sales tax, the live-free-or-die state. While the tax and spend crowd in Washington, D.C. pushes bigger government, many states are leading the way by promoting economic growth through lower taxes, responsible budgeting, and better policies that benefit the American people. While some states like California and New York continue to teach us what not to do every single year, others like Utah and North Carolina and Virginia are building stronger state economies and limiting the damage done to the national economy by Washington. As Rich States, Poor States reveals, Americans will continue to vote with their feet towards these freedom-loving states. For more information, visit richstatespoorstates.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including our newest affiliate, WHYPLP in Cory, Pennsylvania. Welcome to our new listeners in the Keystone State. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.